Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Linnea Hartziker about her acclaimed debut novel, The Half-Drowned King, the first book in a trilogy about Viking-era Norway that will continue with The Sea Queen and The Golden Wolf in 2018 and 2019, respectively. Novels about 9th-century Scandinavian raiders generally focus on the victims, whether Anglo-Saxons, Celts, or other settled European peoples. This series, in contrast, takes place among the still separate kingdoms of the region we now call Norway, following a brother and sister whose stepfather has stolen their birthright. The story begins with the hero, Ranvald, in the midst of a contest. Ranvald danced on the oars, leaping from one to the next as the crew rowed. Some kept their oars steady to make it easier for him. Some tried to jostle Ranvald off when he landed on them. The wind from the mountains, a breath of lingering winter, swept down the fjord, whistling through the trees that lined the cliffs. But under the bright sun, Ranvald was warm in his wool shirt and heavy hose. He had worn them during the whole journey back across the North Sea, through the storms and mists that separated Ireland from home. He touched the bow post and hung on for a moment to catch his breath. "'Come back,' called Salvi. "'You cling like a woman to that dragon.' Ranvald took a deep breath and stepped out onto the first hour again. His friend Edgel held this one, his bleached hair shining in the sun. Edgel smiled up at Ranvald. He would not let him fall. Ranvald's steps faltered as he leapt back the other way, against the direction of the oar's motion, the sun shining in his eyes. He moved more quickly now, falling, slipping, each upstroke catching him and propelling him onto the next sweep, until he reached the stern again and swung over the gunwale onto the more stable deck. Salvi had offered a gold arm ring to whoever could make it the length of the ship and back, stepping from oar to oar as the men rowed. Ronvald was first to try, for Sovi valued daring. And now, please join me in welcoming Linnea Hartsacker. Hi, Linnea. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you for having me on. You have an interesting story of your own. Uh, you started in material science and engineering, and then you went from there to an MFA. So what led you to the sciences and then to that dramatic shift into creative writing? I grew up reading, and I loved English and Shakespeare, and my mom even encouraged me to major in that in college. But she was a scientist, and I was pretty good at math and science. And I grew up in a, a lower middle class family where I couldn't afford enough books, or not nearly as many books as I wanted. And so um, I really wanted to get a job that would pay me well when I left college. So a lot of my thinking was around that. It was pretty mercenary. Um, but as I followed a career that engineering led me into working with internet startups and being a web developer and later a, a product manager, I tried to find ways to uh, feel creatively fulfilled in my career, but it just never was as fulfilling as writing was, which I 
still continue to do on my own after work for a long time. So finally, I was considering getting an MBA to help with my, um, well, what used to be my career. And a friend of mine just said the right thing at the right time, which was, you shouldn't get an MBA, you should get an MFA. And something about her saying that just flipped a switch in me. And I realized, yes, she's right. I need to orient my life around writing. If I have other jobs besides writing, they should be in service of writing. I should pursue an MFA. And that was a real um, sort of inflection point in my life. And so I did apply to, uh, to every single MFA program in New York City. I got into NYU. I did that. It was very rewarding. And I haven't looked back. That's a wonderful story. And is The Half Drowned King the first novel you wrote or the first novel you published? It's the first novel I completed. So I tried writing other things. I even I tried writing a romance novel with the idea which I got from society, I guess, that it would be easy, but I was incredibly wrong about that. And finishing a novel is not easy no matter what kind of novel it is. And I have enormous respect for anyone who does it. And uh, I also wasn't, I like some romance novels, but it's not my favorite genre. And so I didn't have the kind of knowledge and I wasn't steeped in it enough to uh, have the passion to finish it. So I was getting frustrated and I was thinking about if I could only write one story, what would it be? And it was definitely the story of the Half-Drowned King. And I'll go into uh, you know, the inspiration for that a little bit later. But it was because I had this deep, lifelong passion for the subject that I was able to complete it and now I've completed the, the sequel as well. And I'm still really excited about writing the third book in the series. So it's the first novel I finished and the first novel I published. So you mentioned in your bio that you and your family are descendants of Harald Fairhair, the first king of United Norway. How did you discover this connection? It seems like such a long time ago. The, uh, my family got interested in it in, when I was in my teens, and, but I'd grown up hearing Norse legends, and my dad had a book about uh, trolls that he would read aloud to us and do voices and faces, and so I was aware of uh, my family's connection to Norway and Sweden and the Vikings, but it was when this research started that um, we understood the exact lineage, and because uh, Scandinavia has seen very little war in the last thousand years, I mean, minor skirmishes, but it's been fairly, um, has had a lot of continuity. There are church records going back to the coming of Christianity to Scandinavia, which was in about 1000 AD. And before that, the sagas record the lineage. So if you were descended from one of the major saga characters like Harold Fairhair, the lineage for them is in um, the Icelandic sagas. So that was how it was traced back that far. It's really amazing that those records still exist. Yeah, it seems like it's, I, I think about it a lot because I know so many people don't have the privilege of knowing what their, um, their ancestry is that far back because most people's uh, families and ancestors have not come from particularly peaceful and stable parts of the world. And my husband is Jewish and he knows, and his family's from Eastern Europe, and they only know their ancestors back to the great-grandparents because the Jews were moved around Europe so much and there was so much oppression. So it's, um, it's interesting to have that and I like knowing it and I wish more people had that.
Yes, I mean, if I think of Russia, for example, there is literally nothing from the year 1000. There's a compendium of some kind, which is dated to 1076, but everything else exists in later copies, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview. It's just, the, I mean, the idea that there are documents that old, and a lot of documents that old, is really quite extraordinary. And they may have been recopied since then, and it's probably not the original copies. But yes, it is pretty extraordinary that they kept the information. I mean, I I presume and hope fairly accurate over all that time. So, is your ancestry the reason that you decided to create this trilogy, or was there are other reasons? It's definitely a large part of it, but another part of it was, this is my favorite genre. One of my absolute favorite books in my teens was The Mists of Avalon by uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley. And I looked for other, um, other novels that were set in a sort of, in the dark ages, in the borderline between um, history and prehistory. Evangeline Walton's Mabinogian trilogy and uh, Morgan Llewellyn's books about uh, Bronze Age Ireland were also big favorites of mine. And so that definitely got me more and more interested in writing in this genre. Also, I think it's a fairly small genre, so I wanted to write a book that I also wanted to read. Yeah, I remember The Mists of Avalon. It was one of my favorites, too. Um, Harold is an important character in The Half-Drowned King, and I assume it's sequels as well, but he is not the hero of the story. Um, before we talk about the person who is the hero and the heroine, um, could you tell us why you decided to begin to, or to tell Harold's story from someone else's eyes? Uh, when I first started researching Harold, I, I thought he was wonderful. And, and this was in college. I just wanted to know more. And I had access to really good libraries at Cornell. So I looked up information that I could find about Harold. And there's some good stories about him. But when I went to uh, tackle it as a the subject of a novel, I realized that his story is one of one success after another. And that is fairly dull, I believe, from a storytelling perspective. So when I was reading the sagas, I found, or the Heimskringla mostly, I found um, his right-hand man, Ron Vald of Mare, who has a much more interesting trajectory, I think. And so I definitely focused on him pretty early on. I've also always been interested in the stories of, uh, not the sidekicks, but the people who who work in the shadows a little bit more, who may not get all the credit, who have sort of conflicting pulls on their loyalty. So uh, yeah, it wasn't very long before I started, uh, when I started researching it, that I realized Ron Vald would make a much more interesting protagonist than Harold. That's true. You can't really have a great guy who wins battle after battle and never really, well, I guess you can if you're doing a comic book, but not in, not in historical <laughs> fiction. <laughs> I would have either had to invent setbacks to make him interesting or, um, or yeah, or choose a different protagonist. I mean, in the Mists of Avalon, King Arthur is certainly the least interesting character, I think. He has a few little conflicts, but he's not the main character, and I think for very similar reasons. So what role does Harold play in the book then, or the trilogy in the whole? Is he like a MacGuffin or a goal, or what, what is his place in the story? I think of him as more of a catalyst and also um, someone who doesn't change very much, but because through interacting with him, other people are forced to change. 
And yeah, I'm not sure I have more to say about that than that. I think that's what he is. That's his role in the book. So that brings us to Ronvald, uh, who is both the hero and the half-drowned king of the title. So what is his backstory? How does he get this epithet attached to him? And most important, what is he like as a person? So Ronvald is the descendant of uh, kings of the district of Sogn, um, Norway. But by the time we meet him and his family, they've, they've kind of fallen in in power and his his grandfather was the king of the district his father wasn't able to hold as much power and his um his father's dead and he is living with his um his stepfather his mother and his stepmother because there was polygamy in viking age norway and um when the book opens he is coming back from a raiding trip in ireland uh, vikings often would take summer raiding trips while the crops were growing and then come back in the fall to harvest it. But at this time, which is around 860 AD, some uh, raiding trips were beginning to be longer and go over the winter. So he's coming back in the spring from a a trip that went over the winter. Uh, And as he's competing in a contest that I think you heard earlier, uh, the captain of his ship attempts to kill him and throw him into the fjord. And so that is how he gets the epithet. He's rescued from the fjord, but he is half drowned. And what is he like as a personality? He's a he's a little offbeat for uh, a Viking, I would say. He's not as brash or boastful as the people around him, and he really feels that difference. Uh, he's a bit of a perfectionist, and and I think he. He's a bit prideful and could live to have uh, live with a more of a sense of humor. It would it would make his life easier, but not uh, more interesting, I think. But he's also very clever, and sometimes being clever and frequently right makes people dislike him. Right. Yeah. So his big problem at the beginning of the story, uh, as you mentioned, he's living with his uh, stepfather and his mother and his mother's other wife. But he really believes that his stepfather has stolen his father's place and his father's property. It's not, it's not a happy family. So how, did, how does the, either the event or his belief that that is what happened um, drive your story? Well, he comes to realize uh, fairly early, uh, and in earlier drafts, I made it a little more obscure, but in later drafts and in the, the, the finished version, it's, it's fairly obvious to everyone that his stepfather was trying to steal his, um, his birthright. But he's kind of grown up believing that if he behaves perfectly and pleases his stepfather enough, he will be allowed to inherit his birthright. And when the, when the book opens, he is, is having the realization that he will not, and he will have to find some other way to get his birthright back. And this also affects his, his marriage plans. Yeah, so his, um, he's betrothed to a woman named Hilda, who is the daughter of another, a fairly wealthy um, farmer in the district, and... And because his his prospects have fallen since the betrothal was made, Hilda's father tries to end the marriage. Uh, when that happens, Hilda, um, Hilda, who is, she's not as bold as Fonhild, who I think we'll get to in a moment, but she still has her a will of her own. And um, when that happens, 
she she tries to insist to her father that they will still marry and even offers to sleep with Ronvald and try to get pregnant or in order to force a marriage to occur. Yeah, she was I, I agree she's not as bold as Swanhild and and we will get to Swanhild in just a moment. But I thought Hilda was an impressive character. I have a feeling she's going to be back. I'm yeah, she, one of the interesting things about writing this is there's things in book one that I'm using to set up uh, events that happen in, in book three. Um, so yes, well, Hilda tries to you know, do what is right and is expected by society, and her ambitions are to be a wife and a mother. She's still in pursuit of those, in pursuit of um, those goals and doing them well. She has her own uh, type of forcefulness. So how does Ronvald connect with Harold? What does he think of Harold? When Ronvald is thrown into the fjord and is drowning, he has a vision of a golden wolf who uh, goes around a hall and every man who touches him is either um, burned or made brighter. And uh, this is a very important vision for Ronvald, and he believes that it says something about his future. Um, but when he first meets Harold, he thinks that uh, Ronvald's five years older than Harold, and Ronvald is, is just about to turn 20. So Harold is very young, 15, and, um, and very much controlled at this point by his ambitious uncle. So when Ronvald first meets Harold, he thinks that he's kind of spoiled and silly and um, physically impressive, but not impressive otherwise. So um, that brings us to Svanhild. Um, and actually, I hadn't realized that Harold was that young. I mean, 15 is just barely a man, at, even by Viking standards, surely. Yes, yes. So um, Svanhild is, in some ways, even more affected by her stepfather's grab for her father's property, because as a woman, she doesn't have the same kind of options. Yes, and uh, Svanhilda is in a really tough position because because her father isn't living. It's unclear. Ronvald should be the, the man who has power over her, but Ronvald is having his own power taken away. So, um, and she's at the mercy of her stepfather, Olaf, who only wants to use her for his own advantage. And, um, and she does... Well, Viking women in many ways were, or Viking age women were in many ways, had more uh, agency and power than they would uh, after the coming of Christianity. In some ways, they had less. They were often consulted in marriages and betrothals, but they could be married off without their consent, although they could divorce if they wanted to, which was taken away when, um, with the coming of Christianity. So, so she lacks a lot of freedom except to find a, a man to attach herself to, which is a difficult position to be in and kind of a hard position to, to put myself in as a, a modern woman who has so many more options. So I wanted her to be, um, to be able to make her own choices and to make really uh, brave and difficult choices, but also not to read like a, a modern woman with all the choices we have today set down in Viking Age Norway. Yeah, um, that is one of the difficulties, I think, about writing about women in the past. I mean, I remember early in one of my novels, someone was reading it and she said to me, well, why doesn't this girl run away? And it's like, well, because <laughs> in 1500, she has nowhere to go, you know, except into 
I guess, a life as a loose woman, which is not the best way to support yourself, even in purely financial yeah. terms. So, you know, she can't get a job. She can't do anything, really, except, except the fact that, I mean, even, even if she could imagine that her father doesn't have the right to pick her husband, which I think most girls in that period didn't imagine, if she doesn't like the choice, what is she going to do? Indeed, and in a much more, where you know, survival is so much more difficult than it is today, communities were so much stronger. In uh, Viking or Icelandic saga literature shows people to be you know, quite independent and, um, and individualistic compared to some other cultures at the time, but they were still much more community oriented, I think, than we are today. And so the idea of you know, exile was an enormous, was a was a terrible punishment that often resulted in death, and so it would be very hard to choose to exile yourself, even to flee a really difficult situation. And often it's not just this world either. I mean, in the world I'm describing, it actually you would be exiled from your ancestors as well, and therefore you have no protection, not only here on this earth, but you have no future, there's no one pulling for you in the spirit world, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm guessing that pre-Christian Norway had a similar way of thinking about life. I would imagine it would, yes, that's a very good point. So, um, Svanhild's stepfather is threatening to marry her off to a rich elderly neighbor. Um, but the amazing thing is that she does uh, resist, and uh, her first type of resistance is by accepting a ride from a handsome young man who is actually quite attracted to her, but it turns out that he is the last person she should be hanging around with. And why is that? Uh, the, the young man that she uh, luckily or unluckily runs into is uh, Solvi, who is the son of a king and the captain of Ronvald's um, ship who tried to throw him into the water, who tried to murder him in the first chapter. And so he was doing that a little bit reluctantly and um, at the urging of his father and Ronvald's stepfather, but he is Ronvald's enemy. And so in linking up with him, she has introduced some conflict into her relationship with Ronvald. So at that point, um, she actually does run away, uh, unlike my heroine. And um, we won't go too much into the details of the plot, but she does run into Sylvie, uh, the captain, again. And in fact, she ends up at sea, um, accompanying a bunch of raiders. And that is, in a way, the ultimate escape from the situation where we first meet her. What made you decide to send her off on what is essentially a pirate ship? Well, I mean, I, it just seemed once I had her meet Sylvie and they had such great chemistry. I, sometimes I plan everything, but I didn't quite know how great their chemistry would be. It just it seemed like what she would do and not outside the realm of possibility. Uh, we think about Viking ships as being all male uh, expeditions, and I'm sure frequently they were. But recent archaeology has shown that even some of the very first settlement slash raiding trips to England um, probably contained nearly half women. So it it's 
maybe unusual but not implausible and she is i think the the boldest and most adventurous of the main characters and so it seemed like felt like something she would do maybe you could tell us a little bit about saldi himself because you know when we first meet him he's kind of nefarious he's the agent of uh, Randvald's near death. But that's not really who he is as a personality. Well, one of the things I really wanted to do in this book is was a bit of a reaction against the many, many high fantasy novels I've read, um, which I love, but frequently they have a villain who is just as bad as can possibly be, you know, kicking puppies and murdering children and I wanted all of my characters to be recognizably um, human and have understandable motivations. They're trying to do the best for themselves and their family, even when they come into conflict with one another. And Solvi is, is an example of this. He's the son of a king. He thinks of himself as a sea king, which is a, uh, a raider who spends his time at sea and gains his wealth that way and does not farm. Most uh, Vikings were farmers as well. Um, and in his childhood, he was badly burned, which stunted his growth. So he is is short. He was known as Solvi Clof, which means Solvi the Short, although I invented the burning detail. Um, and so so he has feels like he has a lot to prove. And he is kind of the most amoral and trickstery of the characters, but he has his own center and motivations. So um, before we move on to talking about your research and stuff like that, are there any other favorite characters or episodes that you'd like to talk about? I think I'll leave it at that. I have some characters and episodes from subsequent books I'm very excited about and some in this book, but I'll leave that to the reader. Okay. So I have to tell you that I got a special pleasure from the appearance of Rorik. Um, I won't say how he shows up in your novel, because it's pretty far into the story and I don't want to get too much away. But somewhere in my office, because I'm a medieval Russian historian by training, there is a small book that argues that Rorik of Friesland is the same person as the Rurik credited with founding the first Russian state in 862. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Now, I don't know how reliable this is, because... Um, I don't think anybody else, I've never seen it picked up in any other book, um, but it did have some evidence and there are stories, I mean, we know now there was a huge debate for a long time between nationalists who wanted to believe that the Russians didn't need Vikings to form their state and people kept looking at the evidence and saying, oh no, it's pretty clear the Vikings were there. Um, and it's now generally accepted that, yes, they did play a role. And the first person listed in the Russian primary chronicle is um, Rurik and his, quote-unquote, two brothers, which turn out to be two Norse words that mean his guys and his household, you know. So, um, and there are stories in the Russian primary chronicle, which has goes back to before 862, but the oldest manuscript is 14th century. And they clearly derive from the Norse sagas, especially the tales of Harald Hardrada. So I am, you know, segueing from there. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you have looked at the sagas, and that was an important part um, 
of your research, and, and the book does do a wonderful job of creating and drawing us into a ninth century Norway. So I'm curious, does all of the research come from the sagas? Are there other sources that you were able to use? How much information do we have about daily life in, in Norway in that period? Well, another source, uh, primary source, or semi-primary source perhaps that I used is um, Ibn Fadlan, an uh, Arab uh, explorer who, who went into, um, went into Viking-controlled lands and wrote about some of the, uh, the, the culture and the, the ways they lived. And then also I've read a lot of archaeology since most of what we know about daily life comes from, um, from archaeological sources rather than written sources. Vikings didn't have a written language beyond uh, runes, which were not used to uh, record history, but were sometimes carved into, um, into monuments commemorating various things and people, but not at the length that you'd need to record history. There's also some of what we know comes from a, a Danish monk named Saxo Grammaticus, who is writing a couple centuries later, but close enough that we think some of uh, what he had to say was has some accuracy in it. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of missing information, and and then some of the research I did was visiting Denmark, Norway, Iceland, and the Faroe Islands, um, the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde, and the one in Oslo are both wonderful resources. And in Roskilde, I get, got to actually uh, row in a Viking-style boat that had been recreated, which was really interesting. Oh, that's very cool. What was that experience like? It was, and it was only, it was like a two-hour little trip out of the harbor and back. But one of the things that I found the most fascinating about it, and I would never have known without trying it, is that the oars were very long. If you look at any of the pictures and recreations, you know that. But they also had almost no blade, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but you can still get quite a bit of speed with them. And I think it's because they're so long, they don't need much of an oar blade. And that's just the kind of little detail that I don't even think it's anywhere in the book, but it's just so, it makes me so happy to know it because I can picture everything more clearly that way. Does it make it difficult to row with such a long oar? It's a, there, it, it takes some work, but it was quite doable. And I think in, the, in that boat, my husband and I were the only one who felt like trying to row and we still got some speed up, so... They're very efficient craft. Had you been exposed to Scandinavian history early before you started writing this series? Yeah, so my, my family was interested in it, but I it was very you know, very vague. We were descended from Vikings. They liked Dalheston and straw horses and there was a Saint Lucia party and it was sort of more cultural and traditions than than actual history, I would say. So what do you decide, how do you decide what to trust? And when, does, when do you just say, okay, I'm not going to know this and let your imagination take over? Well, one of the, actually, one of the things that drew me to writing about this period of time is there is so much scope for the imagination because there is so little known. So I, I rather enjoy getting to make up a lot. Um, and... And then I've also taken, um, you know, I, I tried to trust the sagas as far as they go, but I've certainly taken some liberties with them. Sometimes 
simply for the sake of the story, for instance, in the in the saga, in the Heimskringla, it seems like Ronvald may be as many as 20 years older than Harold, which really didn't fit the um, relationship that I wanted them to have. So I shortened that to five years. And uh, since the Heimskringla was written so many you know, centuries after the events it describes, I am justifying that with the idea that Snorri Sturluson maybe didn't know how much... Uh, how many years were between them. And also, as, as you probably know, Snorri Strelson was writing with a um, political aim in mind. He was both trying to flatter the king of, current king of Norway when he wrote this, but also put some distance between Iceland and Norway. And so there's definitely times where I've, I've felt like I could justify my um, deviations from, from the saga plot by, uh, by, deciding that, that Snorri could have changed things for his own ends. And then also what was remembered was a political decision even at the time. So especially in book two, there are instances where where something happens one way and the uh, the skalds, the, the poets who with the um, oral traditions that record his, uh, recorded history before it was written down, make a conscious decision to present a um, an event a certain way different than it may have happened. Yeah, I would assume that, you know, there's, there was a long oral tradition, which means that at a certain level, these stories are following the principles of storytelling. You know, they're being woven into something that maybe doesn't use the same styles that we use now in a novel, but it's, the, you know, a story is, it's what we do as human beings, and we expect them to take certain forms and have certain... Um, you know, good characters and bad characters and mixed characters and things like that. Yes, and while um, I take research very seriously and I've had some some moments where I've had readers point out things that were wrong and I fixed them and been a little embarrassed, um, I also do go by the maxim that to never let reality get in the way of a good story. Right, and I think probably the Skald and the and Snorri Sturluson may have been operating from the same principle. I would guess they probably were. So one of the things that interests me as a historical novelist is that you know people say emotions are always the same, and it's true that there are these seven basic emotional states, and you find them everywhere that human beings are. But as a historian, I also know that what causes people to be angry or sad or resentful or whatever, that does change over time and over the course of the map. And so one of the fun things is trying to imagine how it feels if you're in an honor culture, say, compared to a modern capitalist culture. It's do you do that too? I mean, how, how do you decide what's going to upset your characters and what's going to delight your characters and stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. It's, it is, I do feel like it's a mix of, of humans have been the same in many ways um, throughout history while also reacting to different things differently. And then there's further, and I'm sure you found this yourself, there's further the challenge that you, I want my characters to be sympathetic to a modern audience without being too, um, but, but also as accurate as I can make them. So making decisions about how they react to things, how violent they're going to be, is what their attitudes are going to be about, um, about slaves and 
uh, and things like that has been, it's been a challenge. I feel like there's a line to walk and there have been times when I've erred slightly on the side of giving them more modern sensibilities because I'm not sure that a modern reader could be sympathetic with someone who would react the way someone would in the Viking age. Um, uh, but at, on the other hand, I've tried to be as close to working with the, the Moors and, um, and values as I understand them as I can. You know, something that was interesting to me is, and I saw time and again, is that men crying and expressing emotions was, it was considered very manly um, to have a strong emotional reaction to something that might include tears. And so Ronvald is a bit more reserved, but I've tried to show that as something that puts him out of step with the people that he's around, not something that makes him you know, better and more manly. Yeah, no, I absolutely do understand. I write about Tatars, um, not just Russians, but descendants of Genghis mm -hmm. Khan. So, you know, there are these stories and uh, there's a biography of Tamerlane, for example, and when his, you know, this is a guy who raised cities to the ground and thought nothing, right, right packed made pyramids of skulls in front of them and this kind of thing. But when his son died, he was absolutely distraught. He he took his fingernails and ripped his cheeks open and, you know, wept for days. And, um, you know, he was depressed for like six months and probably had to take out a few more cities. To, you know, music. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in some ways, I mean, the women can be a problem, too, because they tend to be very meek by modern standards for quite, I mean, physical reasons as well as anything else. But um, because, you know, they're constantly pregnant and having kids and stuff like that. Right. But the guys, I think, are a particular challenge. And I always justify it by saying, well, there has to have been a range, right? Um Right. So my heroes are always on the nice end of the range. And, uh, and I, <laughs> you know, I love the antagonists because they can be just as bad as they want. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they tend to be much truer, I think, to the standards because, you know, before, I mean, men are still terrible sexists, but before the 19th century, they were really awful. I mean, they thought women were barely human beings. Right. And something I've tried, I've done a little bit, but I've been, uh, some of my readers, my, uh, you know, early beta readers have asked me to, to tone down a little bit is, um, is though Ronvald likes the bold women in his life, he likes them because he finds it attractive, not because he thinks like women should deserve to express themselves or anything. Uh, so his reasons for the things that make him maybe a little more palatable to modern sensibilities are, I've still tried to make those reasons more uh, compatible with, with the Viking Age. Yeah, the other thing that does it for me is capital punishment because, you know, it, these are in their own way adventure stories. And you, you, I mean, you just can't imagine uh, a Tatar hound, for example, saying, oh, well, you know, we'll just fine him or something. I mean, they did under yeah. certain circumstances. They were they were quite happy to hit up people for money in return for not doing terrible things. But if the person has committed a crime or is, you know, facing them in battle or something like that, they, they are not going to stop and worry about whether or not they should be taking this person out. And, you know, here's your hero. And what do you do with that? Right. <laughs> well, I did like what you had to say about ranges. And I did a, a fair amount of reading and thinking about violence in general, because you know, I think humans, 
It's always hard to commit violence, but people can get used to it and get better at it. Um, but I, one of the ways I think that there would be a range of, of reactions is how people is in how people react to the toll it takes on them to commit violence. Um, you know, some people justifying it, some people getting depressed about it. And so that is, that's something that I've tried to think about. Um, and then another way, I think a range of, well, another way that, that the, the sources we have can lead us a little astray, I think, is that they were trying to, pro to portray the most exciting things that could happen. And so it's always more exciting if you take revenge and you never let your honor be impugned and there'll be a lot more violence. But I have to think sometimes in order to get along, you did have to let things go. Even if the manly ideal was to never let a slight go, I am sure there are situations where it did make sense to let it go. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. I mean, it, it's true. These are stories and and the story is more exciting if uh, Beowulf decides to go after Grendel instead of just saying, right. oh, well, <laughs> I can get another haul. <laughs> so both on your blog and in a YouTube interview, you talk about genre bending, which I initially misread as gender bending, which I'm sure wasn't an accident. But what does that term mean to you? In what way does your trilogy bend genres? Well, I do think if there's like a, a fuzzy border between um, historical fiction and historical fantasy, mine is on the historical fiction side of that border. But all my characters uh, believe in magic and the gods to one uh, to some extent or another. They blame sorceresses for bad weather and they um, believe that visions have power. And so I've tried to, to make the book kind of true to what is possible in the scientific world we understand while also being true to the culture. Um, but then I also think that there is so much similarity between historical fiction, especially set as long ago as this is, and fantasy in terms of building a world with its own rules and its own systems that has um, that's very different from ours today. And I feel like a lot of the skills are the same. And then finally, our... You know, English fantasy literature owes so much to Anglo-Saxon um, tales, literature, Beowulf, and uh, the Icelandic sagas, because J.R.R. Tolkien was a scholar of those things, that I feel like I wouldn't have written the book that I wrote had I not been steeped in all of that fantasy literature. Yeah. So I think those are the ways that my trilogy bends genres. I, there are certainly books that are more have more historical fantasy that go further towards fantasy than the half darn king but i hope that readers of fantasy will enjoy it yeah i, I well i'm I, I don't read a lot of historical fantasy so i'm maybe not the best person i thought it was a really excellent blending and creation as you say of this world in which everybody believed these things i mean even in a christian world in that time period they believed in angels and spirits and sort of, you know, a much more hands-on and much more syncretic view of religion than we have now. Mm -hmm. So what would you like readers to take away from the Half-Drowned King? Well, I think the thing I would like them to take away most is just a great gripping story that they can't put down. Uh, but if you, beyond that, if, if they want to take other things away as well, um, I'd love for them to think about the choices that people make when they're deciding how much 
security they will give up for freedom and vice versa, to think about the place of honor and violence, both back then and today. Um, and to think about the choices, especially that women have to make to, to navigate a world where they are not free. That's, that's interesting. Um, choices of security. I, th I agree with you. I think that is a theme in the book. Um, I saw on your website that you've already finished The Sea Queen. Are you working on the third, new, uh, third <laughs> I can say this, third book now? I, I'm doing some kind of late stage edits on the second book at this moment, but yes, I've, I'm about halfway through a rough draft of the third book. Wonderful. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Linnea Hartsiker about her debut novel, The Half-Drowned King. You can find out more about her at www.lineahartsiker.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.